church. Just by way of reminder, I know the room's a bit full this hour. There are about 250 open spaces at 8 o'clock. Who's down for 8 o'clock? <laughs> That's why you're at 9.30. 11 o'clock, there's about 100 open seats, just so you know. Hey, do want to say a special thanks to our veterans, and in addition to that, all of those who currently serve as well. Very, very appreciative of the sacrifices uh, that you have made and, and your families as well, because it's not without a sacrifice to the families. So thank you for that. You might have noticed that we don't yet have access to our new space. That's why last week I used the word, Lord willing. Lord, well, the Lord didn't will it. So we have one inspection left, okay? One inspection left. We're hoping to clear that this week, which means Lord willing, next Sunday. And if it doesn't happen, I'm not gonna say anything anymore. Lord willing, next Sunday. So mm, send up some prayers before the throne for that, right? Got your Bibles? We're in Romans chapter eight. Picking up where we left off last week, chapter seven. Ooh, dark clouds, Romans chapter seven. I told you, that was the struggle. That was the battle. Chapter eight is the victory. The apostle Paul, if you can say this, one of the great Christians in all of Christendom, gave as much of the New Testament, gets brutally honest in his comments. And he talks about his own personal struggles. And he makes a couple statements that I think every honest Christian can relate to. In Romans chapter seven, verse 14, he says this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm built of flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Drop down to verse 24. And this is how the chapter ends. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body that literally leads to death? I think every honest Christian can relate to what Paul says. Romans chapter seven, it's the dark cloud. But then Romans chapter eight, verse one, the clouds part and the light comes streaming through. Now remember back in the day, they didn't have chapters and verses, right? That was added later so that we can make quick reference. And so the flow of thought, you can easily see it. It's like chapter seven, it's, he describes this inner struggle and then he leads him to conclude, ah, oh, I'm such a wretched person. And then a couple of sentences later, he takes off. And in what might be one of, if not the most hopeful sentences in the entire Bible, he says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, the word condemnation back in the day, it was primarily used as a legal term. It was a judicial term. And it describes somebody who was guilty, awaiting punishment under the law. And this fits perfectly with everything that he's written up until this point, because previously what he's told us is that uh, everybody, everybody, every, every person on the planet is born into a dysfunctional relationship with God. The Bible uses a three-letter word to describe it, sin. We don't hear it very often today, 
But that's the reality. One of the most easily verifiable truths of the Bible is that men and women sin. That's the great unifier of all humanity. And so he spends the first chapter just leveling everybody because he says, for those of you who wanna deny God, come on now, you are without excuse because you either believe that everything came from nothing. Everything came from nothing. Or you look around and you see design, order, complexity. The more complicated the design, the more intelligent the designer. There is some supernatural being that gave rise to everything. Well, what created that supernatural being? You know, it's interesting because the Bible describes God as eternal. That is an uncaused cause. Every cause, every effect that we know has some sort of cause behind it. But isn't it interesting that the Bible actually answers that question? God is an uncaused cause. He's eternal. So you're without excuse. So why do people deny God? Well, Paul, then he goes on to say, here's the reason why. Because you just want to live life on your own terms. You don't want there to be a God. So it's easier for you to dismiss God thinking that nobody will hold you accountable. But you are without excuse. Secondly, for those who say, well, I'll just be a moral person. I don't need a God. Okay, you don't even live up to your own standards. <laughs> be real. You don't want people to mistreat you. You mistreat people all the time. You don't want people to defraud you, manipulate you. You do that to people all the time. You can't even live up to your own standard. You're guilty. Well, what about those who never have the word of God? Fine. You have this thing that God gave you called a conscience. You know what you're doing is wrong. <laughs> you don't want to be lied to but yet you lie to others. You don't want to be manipulated, but yet you manipulate others. You know it's wrong to do. That's chapter one. Everybody's without excuse. Leads you to chapter three. We all sin and fall short of God's glory. Glory literally means weight. It's a standard of measurement. We fall short of that. Bad news, bad news gets even worse because in Romans chapter six, verse 23, it says the wages of sin is death. It's what we receive. Now, we minimize it. We don't think, yeah, you know, I'm doing a few things that are, that, are, that are kind of bad. But most people think in the end, it'll all work out because my good will outweigh my bad. You won't find that in the Bible. <laughs> That's why Paul has this conversation about the law. You can't live up to the law. The law is there not to save you, but to show you that you are inadequate. So this is a problem. This is a big problem. Paul transfers that and he says, so Additionally, I have this inward struggle, this thing called the flesh. Now, the best way for me to describe what Paul is about to say to you is this. In your battle to overcome those familiar habits, those unwanted things in your life that you so easily get entangled in, that you keep going back to, you participate in, you're like, that's not good for me, but I'm gonna do it again. to say this, okay? Flesh cannot conquer flesh. Flesh cannot defeat flesh. You need something supernatural <laughs> to defeat this crazy disposition that you were born with towards sin. You can't do it on your own. Flesh cannot defeat flesh. Romans chapter seven is the struggle. Romans chapter eight is the victory. In the first seven chapters, Paul uses what will be enforced in chapter eight 
okay, as the key to overcoming your struggle with the flesh, the key, he only uses that key twice. He only mentions that key twice in the first seven chapters. But then in chapter eight, he mentions it 20 times. You know what the key is? Flesh cannot defeat flesh. You need something supernatural. 20 times in chapter eight, he uses the word spirit, the Holy Spirit. Christian, this is your victory. The most misunderstood person of the Trinity is definitely the Holy Spirit. Like I'm down with God, I'm down with Jesus. The Holy Spirit's kind of mysterious. Paul's gonna clear all that up for you. Mysterious for a reason, because the more you misunderstand the Spirit's work in your life, the less victory you'll have, okay? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation, that legal term, means we're all guilty. We're all under, the Bible is very clear in telling us that there will come a day of judgment. But for those who are in Christ, they've been excused from that day. Think of it this way. You're on death row and you're awaiting your punishment, which is death. And so the warden arrives and says, you're free to go. Wait, what? You're free to go. How am I free to go? Your punishment has been paid by someone else. But wait, my punishment is death. Exactly. Christians are often asked, what's the big deal with Jesus? Why are you so hung up on like Jesus having to go to the cross? It sounds kind of morbid. Because the wages of sin is death. Someone paid the wage that was due to you. That's Jesus. You then receive forgiveness. Now, forgiveness always costs the one who forgives something. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. This is why John 3.16 is so popular, because it warms our hearts. For God so loved the world, God is a giver. He gave his son so that anyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You understand this concept. If you're a parent, you make tremendous sacrifices for your children. You lose sleep. You lose money. Uh, there's a lot of losses, right? Um, sanity. Um, and then what happens is your kids will get older and they'll become even more unappreciative, you know, until they have kids and you're like, deal with it. But you don't think twice about making sacrifices because why? Because you love that child and you always will, no matter what your child does. Having a child is like having your heart where? Outside of your body. For as long as that child lives. You understand that. You understand what it means to sacrifice for someone that you love. So God sacrifices his son out of love. That was the motivation, love. Nothing like Christianity, biblical Christianity. And so, but, but what arrives to you then now is forgiveness. You've been forgiven. Your, your, your jail cell is opened and you've been, you, you're no longer condemned. There is no condemnation for you. Uh, but it's gonna cause, forgiveness always costs something. Okay, in the spirit of the Apostle Paul, because he is tremendously vulnerable, does God use local traffic this time of year to sanctify anybody else? <laughs> Thank you for that affirmation. Okay, good. Vulnerability meets vulnerability. Thank you, okay. So a couple weeks ago, I'm in the merge lane. I'm going north on 101, merging off of Shea. 
and you know, it gets kind of tight there, especially, you know, with all the traffic and stuff this time of year. And I guess, you know, I didn't see that this guy was trying to get over. You know, I just didn't notice him, you know? So finally I noticed him, maybe it was a little too late and I kind of backed off the gas and he punched it and pulled in front of me and, and, um, and Jill was with me and Jill said, that same thing happened to me. I'm like, what? Like, this, this guy flipped me off the other day too. I was like, wait, what? I didn't see it. I didn't even notice it, you know? Like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, that guy gave you the finger. I was like, what are you talking about? Man, it doesn't take quick. It doesn't take much, does it? What happens? Your pride. So I get a little heavy on the gas pedal. <laughs> I don't say anything. Like, what am I gonna do? I drive a Jeep Patriot. It's like 2.2 liters, you know I mean? That was rude. And I need to let him know how rude that was. And you can just feel it rising within you. Forgiveness always involves some measure of sacrifice even if it's the sacrifice of revenge or retaliation. To withhold that, that is at times a bit of a sacrifice. So there's a lot going on here in this Christian message if you're new. It's much deeper than you realize. See, the way God designed it, this doesn't come from the, the mind of man. Clearly, this is supernatural. It is from the mind of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus comes to you freely, but it comes at great sacrifice to the one who gives it to you. So as Paul begins this conversation about the Spirit's work in your life, supernaturally helping you overcome what so easily entangles you, that's the groundwork, right? That's, everything else that flows is from the groundwork of what Jesus did for you, okay? That's verse one. Uh, drop down to verse nine. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh. What does it mean to be in the flesh? Well, uh, John describes what it means to be in the flesh. This is important. He's gonna say three things, okay? Once he highlights these three, these three things, now as you leave this place, you're gonna go, oh, oh, that's this, that's that. Now, now I see, this is a brilliant description of what you see in society around you, okay? Here's what he explains. For all that is in the world, everything. Break it down into three things. Number one, the desires of the flesh, the way I put it is this, if it feels good, mm, do it. And the desires of the eyes, if it looks good, get it. And the pride of life, if it has anything to do with you elevating yourself above others, that's feeding your ego, pride, hubris, whatever you wanna call it, pursue it. By the way, these things are not from the Father. Now notice he's gonna give some identity language here, he's gonna tie that in in a moment but is from the world. So this is what's robbing you of your life, and you may not know it. Your pursuit of the flesh, feel good, look good, have anything to do with elevating yourself above others, that's robbing you of your life and not giving it to you. And here's the insidious thing about it. These things can become so attractive, and you wanna possess these things, and then what happens is you end up being possessed by them, and you become a creature that you never wanted to be slowly over time. And you know what kind of creature that is? I'll show it to you. <laughs> Who is it? 
Gollum, not Schmeagel, close. It was Schmeagel. That's Gollum. Schmeagel was this joyful creature, very civil, well-behaved, who lived in the light, had friends, enjoyed life, but became obsessed with the ring. More specifically, what the ring embodied, which was what? Power. Power. And slowly, slowly, his fleshly pursuits made him a hideous creature. If we had these spiritual lenses, Tolkien was a Christian, man, every single one of his characters, is, there's a super profound, deeper meaning that relates to you and I. If we could put on these spiritual lenses and look in the mirror and see the condition of our souls, what would it be? What would it reflect? So this is not your destiny, uh, Christian, not to be turned into something grotesque. Continue with verse nine. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Ephesians chapter one. The moment you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are sealed with the spirit who is a promise of all that is to come. So to possess the spirit is to possess salvation. Okay, that's what he's saying. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, excuse me, verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Here's what he's saying here. When Jesus comes on the scene, because he lived a, a perfect, sinless life, he stands apart from sin, therefore he can judge it. Verse three, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That's what the law does. It actually shows us how weak our flesh is. Like we can't keep, just take the 10 commandments for example. We can't keep the 10 commandments. So that shows us how weak our flesh is. That's what he's saying. It says, for God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemns sin in the flesh, standing apart, judging it, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the ancient Greeks and Hebrews used this word walk to describe the course of one's life. And essentially, what Paul is saying, there's only two ways a person can walk. You can either walk according to your flesh or you can walk according to the spirit. Okay? So there is this new humanity now that, that God has created because his spirit lives within his people. And the spirit of God enables you supernaturally to have this ability to be free from the things that burden you in terms of their ownership. is what Paul says. At times I feel like I'm an absolute slave to sin. What he's about to explain is because the spirit is in you, you're no longer a slave to it. You don't have to be. Begins with a new mindset. And that mindset is contrasted with those who don't have the spirit. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh, they're always thinking about fleshly things. You know, and isn't that the trajectory of it? It's like you get involved in it and it's like, now it's all I can think about. This is, this is the insidious nature of pornography because what happens is it begins to form your thought patterns to such a degree that now you can't even interact with the opposite sex without sexualizing them. Well, what a person does in the privacy of their own home, that, they should be able to do whatever. No. 
We live in this thing called a society. What you do in private affects you publicly. Then you take who you are outside and you interact with the rest of us, just as I interact with you. Now, what you do in private is very important to what happens to you, through you in public. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh, that's death. So often he equates flesh with death and the spirit with life. But to set mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It's not what God wants, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul is here highlighting a very simple principle. As a man, as a woman thinks, so they are, right? You are a collection of your thoughts. Before you take action, you're actually thinking about it. And that's what he's emphasizing here. When you pursue the flesh, it's like this. It's like, a, you know how a flywheel works? You push it, you push it, and it's a struggle at first, and then all of a sudden, you don't have to push that thing anymore. It's generating its own momentum. That's, that's what happens with your flesh. It takes maybe a little bit of work to engage in something. That's why you, know, I always, you always tell, try to tell the kids when they're little, it's always easier to say no to sin the first time. Then you start pushing on that flywheel, and then all of a sudden, it has its own momentum, and then you're caught up in it, and then it's just a part of the fabric of your life, and man, it doesn't take any work on your part at all anymore. It's built into what you do and who you are. You're controlled by what fills your mind. The things you think on will form you. Two distinct mindsets. You have the natural mind and the spiritual mind. He explains in 1 Corinthians chapter two. The natural person, what he's referring to there is someone who doesn't have the spirit of God in them, therefore they're not saved, does not accept the things of the spirit of God because they're foolish to them. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I'll give you an example. Several years ago, this guy, he was criticizing, he was mocking me, he attempted to mock me because of my faith in Christ. And he's like, okay, let me get this straight. You, you mean to tell me that you believe that some obscure Jew born 2,000 years ago, raised in the little town of Bethlehem, born in the little town of Bethlehem, raised in the backwater town of Nazareth, was the son of God, died on the cross so that you could have eternal life, then was raised to life three days later. You actually believe that? Yeah, I do. I totally do. And let's have the conversation. First of all, there's a mountain of evidence, historical evidence to support that. Why would, why would, here's the question for you. You have to explain to me that. Why would Jews in the first, Jews are fiercely monotheistic, even to this day. Why, that's what set them apart from all of the world. Everybody else was polytheistic, not the Jews. Jews were monotheistic. One true God for them is in the Shema. Memorize it, strap it to their heads. Only one God. Why would first century Jews begin worshiping a man. Well-known fact. They started worshiping this man, Jesus from Nazareth. <laughs> Explain this. I've said it this way before. Why is Christianity here? Why is it a thing? It should not exist. Even the closest followers of Jesus were like, wait, resurrection? Explain that again. And they scatter. Doubting Thomas, he's the empiricist. Prove it. Touch. Oh, okay. He's a Jew. Good Jewish man, what did he do? Text says he falls on his knees and he worships Jesus. Why is Christianity around? See what, okay, all right, so hey, maybe I'm not so foolish. If you're open-minded and open-hearted, let's look at the evidence. Okay, aside from that, there's still this spiritual element that, that works that says, yeah, that's what I believe. Now, for, to the unsaved, they're like, you're stupid. This is why culturally speaking, what happens to you as a Christian is they kind of pat you on the head and send you on your merry, naive way. Oh, he's a Christian. Sorry. <laughs> don't let that uh, 
disrupt you. You cannot be spiritually appraised by someone that doesn't have the spirit of God in them. And that happens from the culture toward Christians all the time. Okay, so you understand what he's saying? There, there, there's this natural person doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to them. They have to be spiritual, spiritually discerning. Literally, the spirit of God in you gives you a new life. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Think of righteousness in this context as doing right, right deeds. If the spirit of him who raised this verse, verse 11, is worth a lifetime of pondering. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Twice, in one sentence, Paul has reminded you that the spirit of God is in you, Christian. This is fundamental. You will never overcome your battle with sin unless you realize, number one, flesh cannot conquer flesh. That's why you've been given God's spirit. This is the supernatural movement of God within you that will help you, enable you to win the battle. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will raise you. How do we know that that spirit is alive and working? See, this is why it always, it all comes back to the resurrection. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, that, that means that this verse is true whether you fully embrace it or not, is true. It's a mindset that comes from the Spirit of God. At the same time, you have this, this new life here now because of the, the Spirit's work. And you Sometimes in the Bible, you'll read the word spirit. It has a small, lowercase s, and that refers to the human spirit. And sometimes it'll have a capital S that refers to the Holy Spirit. And essentially, the Bible describes everybody living according to one of two spirits, either the spirit of man or the spirit of God. What does it look like to be controlled by the spirit of Jesus? Well, it's so cool because we actually have a spiritual yardstick, so to speak, by which we can measure the spirit's leading in our lives. Galatians chapter five. But I say walk by the spirit. Here's the key. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So there's the course of the spirit's life and leading. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensual, porneia. We get our English word pornography. It's a very broad word that encompasses all forms of sex outside of God's design, which is within the commitment of marriage. Sex outside of marriage. Now be careful, young people. That is a smoke screen. That is a false intimacy. What happens is men will give women affection in order for them to get sex. Women will give men sex in order to gain the affection of men. Either way, outside of marriage, specifically, this, this is the smokescreen. This is the false intimacy. That's why sex before marriage, be very careful. Because this is why, statistically speaking, even from a secular point of view, cohabitation before marriage leads to a higher divorce rate. Why is that? There's the smoke screen. On the relational pyramid, the foundation is, is your connection with Jesus Christ. The connection you have, the connection uh, the person that you wanna be with has, that's the, that's the foundation, think of the pyramid. That forms the base. If that, your sexual connection, right? 
That's at the top, okay? If you invert that pyramid, it's gonna be unstable. If that's the, the basis of it, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. It, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and other stuff like this, okay? There's a long list. It's not comprehensive. That's what he's saying. Okay, so, so that's, the, that's the fruit of the flesh. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And if you have this last one, you probably have them all. Self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is a law unto itself. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So as you allow the spirit to lead you, the flesh becomes crucified. And, and I'll tell you, it, is, it becomes easier when you practice the leading of the spirit you find that the desires of the flesh become less powerful. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Flesh cannot overcome flesh. You need something supernatural. Doesn't it make sense? It's so good. It's so brilliant. It's so right. This is the Spirit's work in your life, Christian. Ultimately now, he ends by saying, this leads you to a new identity and you will function based on your identity. This is why identity is so popular in our day. The Bible speaks to it. The Bible has been speaking to it for a long time. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's your true identity, Christian. It's actually not wrapped up in your skin color, how much money you make, your career. It's not wrapped up in the family that you were born into. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When Jesus was in the garden, you know what he, this is the Aramaic word, Abba, which, is, which means daddy. He literally says, daddy, in the garden of Gethsemane before he's about to go across. Daddy, I really don't want this to happen. That's a really tough situation when your child is faced with something and everything within you as a parent wants to go, I will spare you. I will spare you from the pain, child. See, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. God was willing to give his son for humanity. That's the depth of God's love. But Jesus cries out, Daddy, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Christian, you will suffer in this life. You will suffer. If you're not receiving some, sometimes Christians suffer because they're just dumb. You know what I'm saying? You just, just don't be that Christian. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you brought that on yourself, man. You know what I mean? Jesus was never that way. Jesus always suffered for doing what was right, for speaking what was right. And, and it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. This is why Jesus was filled with what? Grace and truth. You try to speak the truth devoid of grace, nobody's gonna listen to you. You're just a barking pit bull. Grace makes truth acceptable. 
but you will suffer. You will have relationships taken away from you. You will have things taken away from you. And, and it's, it's like the story of David is so good because every crutch in his life gets taken away. You want that? Gone. You want the friendships? Gone. And he's in a cave by himself. He's like, God, that's where the, your, most, your fa- most favorite psalms are because David is in a super desperate place. And it isn't until you're in the bottom of that pit that you eventually look up and you say, okay, Lord, let's do your way. Our identity is with the family. Adoption. Adoption is obviously super special in our own time. My wife is adopted. And, uh, and, but back in the day, maybe more so. Because back in the day, adoption meant name. Name. You carry the family name. That was, that was the most significant thing about being adopted. And what's interesting is that even in the adoption, the term you used for your, your father is daddy. It's not father. More literally, more endearing, it's daddy. Galatians 4, 6 says this, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, father. That's the cry of a child. You function based on your identity. So I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Whenever I face any particular temptation, we all have our certain disposition. I'm predisposed to some things that you may not be, but we probably all, at the core, there are some similarities there that are driven. Every young man, I was speaking at GCU's chapel. By the way, if you go to attend GCU, go to their chapels, man, it's awesome. Um, great worship. Uh, one of our own worship leaders, Peyton, who's leading, who helped lead today, is in one of their bands, okay? GCU, send your kids to GCU, okay? <laughs> Definitely, send your kids to GCU. Um, and um, what I told them was, I said, you know, every, I said, let me speak to the young men in the room. Young men, you, you must learn to control two things. Number one, your aggression. Every young man must learn to control his aggression. Number two, young men, you must learn to control your sexual appetite. These two things are the reason why many men are incarcerated, because they lack them. Men, control your aggression. Use it to correct a wrong, but in the right way. And learn to control your sexual appetite. You lose control of these two things, you will become undone. Why? Because they are of the flesh. You function based on your identity. So I wake up and when I face any particular temptation, I say, Jason, this is not who you are. You don't belong to that family. That's not the way you walk. Therefore, it's not what you do. I own nothing to the flesh. That's dead to me. And the Spirit of God will lead me to life. The Spirit of God working with the Word of God. By the way, know your Bibles. This is why when Jesus was tempted, what happened? How did he respond? He responded by quoting Scripture. And all throughout the ministry of Jesus, you hear him referring to God the Father as Abba. That's identity. Jesus is the example in all things. You're a new humanity. That's what I love about being a Christian, man. We swim upstream. That is vicious, savage, and so needed. And if you're not swimming upstream, all you, the cultural current is moving so rapidly, all you have to do is step into it, you're gonna be swept away. It's not enough just to step into it as a Christian. You need to start swimming upstream. That's who you are. I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. Important that we don't let this opportunity get by us. Because without a doubt, the Spirit of God wants to do his work in your life. Now you know. 
Now you know what it is that gives you the power to conquer what has been so familiar in your life. It's all about how you think, your mindset, your identity, applying the word of God to any particular situation. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, we take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's awesome. What, okay, this thought that's coming into my, my brain, what does Jesus have to say about it? What does the word have to say about it? That will lead you to life. Father, please, we need your help. Spirit, Holy Spirit, continue to activate this within us, Lord. And as, as we put the flesh to, the de- to death more and more, we, we are just, we're, we're given life. It's the life of meaning, purpose, significance, uh, well-ordered, all of the things that we want. They're there for us. Remind us of this, Lord. None of it would be possible without the foundation of the cross, and we're so grateful for that. May the Spirit's work be quickened in our lives today for our good, ultimately for your glory, we pray. In the name of the one who makes it all possible, his name is Jesus Christ, and God's people said,